Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Forever chemicals are now on the radar of federal and state regulators. They're a class of compounds known as PFAS, short for PER and polyfluoroalkyl substances that don't break down easily. We talked to a company this week about new technologies like UV light, which are developing to deal with these emerging contaminants that exist in our environment including our landfills. Today we hear from the city's director of environmental services about a new study to begin testing for forever chemicals in our solid waste and wastewater. There's a lot of studies going on and we're trying to find out where it is and how much how much of it there is and the different species that there are because as you know it's it's a whole bunch of different things 40 or 50 compounds or maybe more that constitute these materials and they've been widely used and they're they're kind of everywhere. When we talked to uh, Board of Water Supplies' Ernie Lau, the chief engineer, he had said that he was anticipating new requirements from the EPA about uh, utilities, you know, testing for PFAS. And so they've started that on their end. But is the city doing any current testing now of our landfill leachate at all for PFAS? So currently, we, we are not doing any ourselves. We are participating in a study that's actually EPA funded through the State Department of Health. And it's a statewide evaluation of PFOS, and it does include landfill leachate. And we just signed on recently to this study. We will be sampling from our Waimanalo Gulch landfill, from the PVT landfill, from our closed Kapa'a landfill, and then a landfill on Kauai, Maui, and Big Island. So everything is covered. In, in that study. So that's a very good thing. Right now we don't have we don't have data. The testing is expensive and it, it hasn't been something that we've been able to do. It has, hasn't been a requirement up till now and then the methods have been changing and getting better really pretty much just up to the present. So to be able to characterize these things. Well, I was just at the, the Kapa'a Quarry landfill on Sunday uh, and I, the tide was up and so the marsh was pretty full. You know, when you have a transfer station like that, you know, near this body of water, I mean, yeah, you just kind of wonder what is leaching, if anything. Right. Well, so the the, uh, the the landfill is 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 the hill, right? So that's the closed old landfill, and and it is important to know a little bit about about landfills and how they work. And there is a liner. It's actually a a liner system, which is more than one liner. Really, there's two components: a clay liner and a plastic liner, essentially thick plastic liner. And those those. Uh, required on the at the bottom at the base of a landfill, and then the landfill is is built over that. And then when a landfill closes, it, it's required that there's a closure process, uh, which also puts an impermeable seal on the top of the landfill. The same thing, so that it's basically encased, and it should then not, you know, it's not subject to rainfall infiltration any longer once it's closed. And so then it will it will stop producing leachate because there isn't any any more source of water. So that's primarily where leachate comes from, reinfiltrating you know rainwater. 
on an, on an active landfill. But leachate, as, as you know, is, is all collected, and it forms in the, in the bottom of the landfill. And according to regulation, you can only keep less than one foot of, of leachate in the bottom of the landfill. So you're continuously taking it out. It's not like it's a big storage of a bunch of water. And it is also in individual cells. It's not like um, the whole thing at once. Landfills are built up of cells of several acres in size, and then they're closed, and then you build more on top of each other. But uh, leachate is, is, of course, collected, and then it is, is just treated. So whether it's UV light or, you know, burning it in, in an incinerator, you want to be able to neutralize the dangerous effects. EPA is studying all of the treatment technologies uh, right now, and with respect to you know water, you know, we're basically talking about you know right now they're focusing on drinking water because that's a direct you know kind of exposure, and the effective treatments, the most effective treatments are called anion exchange, which is normally used to remove things like calcium and magnesium and the sodium and chloride and stuff to take out salts, but it also removes PFAS, and then. Granular activated carbon, GAC, which is really the most common uh, and very effective method, which is also what Board of Water Supply uses already to treat a lot of our water to remove pesticides. And then the third one is high-pressure membranes, for example, reverse osmosis. So those are the three what they call best available technologies or effective treatments. After that, then there are, there are quite a few things that they know are ineffective, and then there are a bunch of innovative technologies that are being evaluated, and the UV one is, is one of those. This is now being recognized as an emerging contaminant, then we've got to be innovative and come up with different ways to try and solve this problem. Yes, exactly. So we will be following that very closely and then doing whatever is going to be necessary to, um, to treat our leachate. Currently, the leachate goes to uh, our wastewater treatment plant, and then it would mix with the raw wastewater, go into the plant, and then typically PFAS attaches to surfaces like wastewater solids. Most of the PFAS would end up in the, in the sludge. In our case, it goes to it goes to H power, so it gets incinerated. And so, incineration is the best available technology for solid waste or solid streams, non-water streams that are that need to be treated. H power is a waste energy facility which produces ash. So the product in our case is ash. And as part of that study that I mentioned. We will be measuring the leachate. So as you, I think you know, the Waimanalo Gulch landfill is our only landfill, but it's actually two landfills. Um, the material that goes into the landfill is separated. So all the ash goes to a, an ash landfill, which is the larger part. And then those two are always separate, and separate leachate is generated from them. So and we will have the opportunity to measure the leachate from the two different sources. I think a lot of the sampling has been completed. I am not sure when we're, we're going to get the results, but I don't think it's too far off. I, I think it's this year. I think out here we're, you know, we're definitely in relatively good shape okay. uh, compared to other places. And I, I think we're still kind of figuring out if there's much of a problem or not. But it seems like we'll be able to deal with that and, and figure out what the treatment 
technologies are and do them, you know, you know, as mm-hmm. necessary. Do you think because it's an emerging contaminant, do you think this is going to pose any extra challenges as we try and site a new landfill? Well, it's definitely part of the conversation uh, nationwide, you know, in terms of in terms of PFAS and landfills and leachate, as well as biosolids and you know compost and and all different kinds of things. So. I, I think right now we are, um, you know, we've kind of gone back to the drawing board and we're only looking at sites that are not above the potable aquifers. So right. that's how we are addressing that. It's a work in progress. Right, right. Um, we, we know that our, that our landfill doesn't leak because we have to do quarterly monitoring of monitoring wells. And we've been doing that since the landfill opened, and that's because that's required. And so we don't have any evidence that the landfill has leached, has the leachate has leaked at all. And so you know we feel we feel good about that, and people should feel good about that. But we do still have to treat the material that we pull out. You know, it's not leaking, but we're intentionally getting it out, and we have to do something with that. So we look forward to learning more about the best and most cost-effective ways to do that uh, in in relation to you know our specific situation here in Hawaii. Okay, for both the landfills and the treatment centers. Exactly. We have been hearing from Roger Babcock, Director of the City's Environmental Services Department, about a new statewide study to begin testing for forever chemicals in our landfills and wastewater systems. Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning for our reality check. Today, the story is about a bill to extend the excise tax to pay for rail. Or maybe not. Good morning, Chad. <laughs> Good morning, Catherine. And, and nice setup there. Thank you. <laughs> well, this story is uh, uh, something that Kevin Dayton came across. Oh, I just love it. It's, it's oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, he he actually called me. You know, of course, he's uh, one of our uh, lead capital reporters, and I'm filling in for him. Always happy to do that. But uh, he actually called me yesterday. and said, "Oh my God, did you see this bill? Did you?" And I said, <laughs> "No." And so we quickly looked at it, and as you p- described it accurately, uh, this bill, Senate Bill 176, would indeed extend the surcharge on the general excise tax to pay for rail, and that, of course, would have been. Enormous news, very big news, not only because it uh, has caught everyone by surprise, um, but this, as you know, it's a very controversial issue. But um, Kevin did call Donovan Dela Cruz, chair of Ways and Means. That was the committee that, that passed this bill. Uh, and, and now he says, well, it, w- it was an oversight. Uh, essentially, they, they made a mistake. There's now another hearing scheduled on Thursday, and uh, Dela Cruz says he's going to defer the bill or kill it. But I got to tell you, it's the number one story on the Silly website <laughs> right now because, you know, you put rail and taxes together and the ledge, and, you, and people are talking. Oh my gosh! I mean, I, I I can imagine a former mayor, Kirk Caldwell, was like, "What?" <laughs> you know, and Joe Takuda, you know, I think who lost her uh, her position uh, yeah. as Ways and Means over this rail flap. I mean, oh my goodness! 
I mean, we know that rail is, is, is short on funding and it's going to be short on funding. And it was the legislature way back in the day, I think it was 2005, that did establish that surcharge uh, on the general excise tax. And of course, that's essentially our form of a sales tax. It's also regressive, but that's another story. But um, we pay the GET, meaning folks in Hawaii, so do tourists, visitors that come here. And it, it, it it's a lot of money, uh, about $300 million a year comes from that surcharge. Uh, and if you add that up, the projection uh, over the course of this uh, surcharge, which is supposed to expire in 2030, is $6.4 billion. That's B, B billion. And that's for rail construction. Now, um, if for some reason they were going to extend that, it, of course, would be a lot more money, and, and not just to cover construction, but also operating cost of, of rail. There are people that support rail that want to make the GET surcharge permanent. Uh, this bill would have extended it to an uncertain date, but as we said, that is not going to be the case. But one wonders whether uh, at some point the legislature will have to, recon- to, again, consider whether to change the GET surcharge. Well, you know, I know the lawmakers are inundated with thousands of bills, but I, I right. love in, in Kevin's story, he pointed out that the committee voted 13 to 0 with almost no discussion. Right. It was it was unanimous. And it, it does illustrate one of the, the frustrating things about the legislature is that you, you just don't always know what's going on. And in this case, it didn't appear even some of the members knew what, what they were voting on. And let's face it, some things happen rather quickly without informing the public. And and one wonders where this is going to go. By the way, that same bill also would have changed the surcharge. I think right now it's one half of one percent on the GET, but the, it actually would have cut it back from, I guess we would say 0.5% to 0.25% in addition to that extension, I guess as a way to sort of make it easier on everybody. But but we should also note that uh, since then, the, the legislature has allowed the other counties, not just the city and county of Honolulu, which has rail, obviously, but also the other three counties, they too have the ability to uh, le- levy that surcharge. It has to be in the matter of public transportation. Uh, but uh, as again, uh, you wonder whether it's going to come back because it's a lot of money and, and there's no projection that I know of that the rail is going to be self-sustaining without support. Well, uh, I understand that uh, Senator Donovan Dela Cruz has rescheduled the bill for reconsideration. Right. It looks like I think it's Thursday now. Is that is that mm-hmm. what uh, that's yeah. what my read says? Um, and, you know, but I got to tell you that another thing that came out of the story is Dela Cruz did tell Kevin, you know, we some of us at the ledge would like to, to have that surcharge go to education. Some of us at the legislature would like to, to go for social services. There's even another bill that's still alive that would have surcharge on the GET, go to affordable housing. So there is recognition that there's a lot of money there that could go to very worthwhile causes. But at the same time, uh, it's just you know hanging over us that the rail is going to be unprofitable. As you know, we can't even get it past the Civic Center mm-hmm. uh, right now and not go to Ala Moana as originally planned. Well, I'll be checking in on that Thursday hearing to hear uh, <laughs> Adela Cruz's explanation. But thanks so much, Chad. Sure, Catherine, anytime. That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. You can also check out Kevin Dayton's story online at civilbeat.org. This is a conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. 
au niveau au niveau au niveau au niveau au the last public event at Aloha Stadium was held this past Saturday. So today we're testing your knowledge of the facility. It was built in 1975 at the cost of $37 million. The first sporting event there was a college football game between the University of Hawaii and Texas a and uh, The structure was home to the UH football team for 45 seasons. It also hosted college football's Hawaii Bowl as well as the NFL's Pro Bowl for several years. The state's largest swap meet opened in the parking lot in 1979 and still operates today. But Aloha Stadium wasn't just a venue for sports. Several music artists have performed memorable shows there over the years. You remember the last concert there was head, uh, headlined by rapper Ice Cube in 2019. Prior to that, artists like Bruno Mars, the Eagles, and Michael Jackson entertained sold-out crowds. For today's Backyard Quiz, do you remember who played the first concert? concert at Aloha Stadium? Hint, it was in 1976. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HP or tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. Closing out Black History Month and moving into Women's History Month gives us an opportunity to reflect upon black women's leadership, from Vice President Kamala Harris to the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement to Michelle Obama, former First Lady. Black women are recognized as significant voices for change. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke with attorney Bridget Morgan Bickerton about reasons that women come together and approach this concept of difference. We're talking today a little bit about black women's leadership what are the qualities you think that make now this group so visibly prominent in national politics and in the national arena? I've always myself been hesitant, if not uncomfortable, you know, speaking on behalf of any group that's defined in terms of race or ethnicity. In part, that's because I, you know, myself, you know, multi-ethnic, multiracial background. And I've always related to people along lines of issues, social justice, working towards common goals. Uh, I have seen a lot of of leadership locally here in Hawaii by uh, black women, by Asian women, Pacific Island women. And I, I think, 
to be frank, I think a lot of women are are fearful for the next generation and are taking upon themselves to to try to affect change and to try to make our community safer and just more prosperous for for the next generation of leaders. I've witnessed quite a few notable uh, local uh, women leaders who are doing things to unite, you know, different groups of people. I'll just give an example of a, a local female leader who I think is is really has for for a long time now done things to unite different groups of women toward the end of affecting change, and that's Sharon Yarbrough of Sisters Empowering Hawaii. The other day, she had a fabulous event where she featured Crystal Kwok, who is a uh, documentary filmmaker. She's a PhD student at UH, and she's made a film called Blurring the Color Line. It's about Chinese in the segregated South. You know, Sharon and Crystal came together and put on this, this really excellent event where there were some very real conversations between you know, Asians, blacks, and Pacific Islanders about just the intersection. Our lives are, are very intersected here on the island. And Sharon is someone who is who is out there uniting people and bringing people together. You know, I, I think you mentioned that Akemi Glenn was either on your show yes. or will be on your show. I really admire what she's done with the Popolo Project. He has really created spaces for black people to uh, feel safe and to feel comfortable sharing their experiences that they have here. She's really done a lot in the community through the Popolo Project toward that end. And do you find that your identity as a black woman is constructed a little differently here in Hawaii versus on the mainland? And how is it different? You know, my mom's white, my dad is black and uh, American Indian, and and I think I view my own identity very differently from how the world views it and how from my community around me views me. Uh, you know, like I said, as, as someone who is multi-ethnic, I relate to people on um, lines that have a lot less to do with race and ethnicity and a lot more to do with uh, issues that have to do with social justice, making change, helping people, being kind, being mindful. However, I do recognize that I live in a world where I'm viewed a certain way. We live in a world of categories, and people desire to put everyone into <laughs> into a, a category, whether it be a racial category, a gender category, a sexuality category. You know, when I first moved to Hawaii, I. I felt like it was a racial haven, a, a melting pot, and I felt very, very comfortable. I felt loved and embraced, and it was really nice to experience living in a place where more of the population than not, it has a multi-ethnic, multi-racial ancestry, uh, whereas Seattle, it, it was not like that, and I was often in predominantly white um, schools and communities. As I have uh, gotten older and you know, my career has developed and I've had children. I think that that view has become a little more complicated and I have encountered experiences of anti-blackness and things that I think probably would not happen if I were an Asian woman, for example, or a man. So it, it, it's always fluctuating, it's always changing, and I think that is why it's just important for, for women leaders in general to unite um, across racial lines and ethnic lines and 
try to focus on the things we have in common and support each other and lift each other up. What are some of the biggest issues you think uh, face women together that might be able to unite us? Mobility and advancement and employment is a, is a big issue that women, you know, still face and will probably face for a long time. For example, the legal profession is still, especially in Hawaii, very predominantly male. And I think that the more women can support each other in, in business and the professional world, whether you're an attorney, whether you're a doctor, professor, academic world, we just have to have each other's back and we have to support each other. And, and if you see something happening that's not right, if you see a male colleague being paid more than a female colleague and you know that female has been there longer or has better credentials, you know, speak up or encourage that woman to speak up. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about the narrative of women and how the narrative, the written narrative, let's say the laws were not constructed to center a woman's experience or body. So the very system that we live under is one that is not created for us. I do feel that particularly in the last five, six more years, black women have have not wavered in their belief about what we should be doing as a collective to advance justice. I mean, I feel like they're a very educated population. I know that um, they're the biggest book buying population. You know, I think Michelle Obama, obviously, it'd, it'd be, <laughs> we'd be silly to not at least raise her name in this conversation. She's had a huge impact on that and her own authorship and producing of books, I think, has contributed to, to that statistic that you just mentioned. Women have a, have a great interest in our communities and in the next generation and in children. And I think, you know, men do, too. There are a lot of issues that are affecting children that I don't think are front and center to the conversation. The new gun law that was just, you know, I mean, that's terrifying, and I think we need to rally around, you know, issues like making sure that guns stay out of our schools here in Hawaii because we have been one of the lowest had one of the lowest incidences of, of gun violence in the country, but you know now that laws have changed, it's it's very scary, and I think that's an issue that women can and should be rallying around. There there are so many other issues, and I I, I don't know that we have you know time to get mm-hmm. into them today. Uh, I don't think Hawaii is really in danger of um, succumbing to the the horrible uh, anti-abortion laws that that a lot of the the other states in the in the country are are now facing but we need to make sure that we're working together to preserve that right here and economics is another issue i mean with inflation and uh, interest rates it's it's a rough time it's a really rough time and i think people are are feeling desperate and when people feel desperate it's a lot harder to unite and it's and people feel isolated you know, and I've seen this happening. I've seen it happening. I've seen women coming together and uniting and, and trying to lift each other up, and we just need to continue to do that. 
So what do you think that the general population can do to support women, support black women in leadership positions or otherwise? In what ways can the rest of the population show we're willing to support? Well, I, I know that this might sound kind of <laughs> trite, but I think that especially in the climate, it's sort of a global climate of hate right now. If people come from a place of love and getting to know your neighbor and getting to know the people you work with, it's much, much harder to not pay attention when that person is having an issue or when that person is struggling. And I think that in this global age, in this age of social media, we're all feeling a lot more isolated than we felt even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So I think we all have a responsibility to, to really just be more mindful and to approach every situation with love. If we do that, it's a sure winner. I mean, it's, it's a lot harder to, to discriminate, and we all need to work in connecting and reconnecting with people that we might have you know, lost that connection with through the pandemic. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Okay, cheers. <laughs> well, we wrap up Black History Month with HPR Stephanie Hahn and Bridget Morgan Bickerton. They were talking about black women's leadership, change, and how we approach difference. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, performing Schumann's Fourth Symphony and Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 20, featuring pianist J-Hook Cho, March 11th and 12th at Hawaii Theater. MyHSO.org. I'm Stephen Dubner, and the next Freakonomics Radio, how can you tell if your good idea will scale up? There is no single quality that distinguishes ideas that have the potential to succeed. The economist John List is here to help. Look, my book is kind of the common sense checklist. The voltage effect is meant to brighten your life and society. Will it? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing a variety of art experiences for the community. Learn more about art classes, workshops, and drop-in art making for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, performing Schumann. It started as a pilot project and now may develop into something longer lasting. The problem of feral cats, dogs, and other domestic animals has kind of reached a tipping point on the island of Hawaii. Here to talk about it is HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So the Hawaii County Council is working with the administration to establish an independent animal control agency. And the agency would be in charge of caring and maintaining domestic animals. So that's your feral cats, dogs, and other domestic animals. Chickens <laughs> and maybe goats even. Yes, those types of animals. And the Hawaii Police Department has overseen animal control 
operations since July 2021, and that was initially a pilot program. And it started after the Humane Society stopped bidding on the contract with the county in 2020, and after concerns for how the Hawaii Rainbow Rangers were handling operations. So Hawaii County Managing Director Lee Lord says HPD control has increased transparency because it gives the county direct oversight. I think one of the best things we can do is be as transparent as possible. Um, what's happened in the past um, and the reason that we decided to do a one-year pilot program where the county took it over um, was because what was happening wasn't good and we weren't people weren't knowing, the county wasn't knowing exactly what was going on unless we made visits to um, the sites. So to be transparent, I think, first of all, in the county website, we can and we will, and we're planning and we're already talking about it, um, be posting our statistics and metrics about what's happening at the animal shelter. I would like to, and I've already spoken to the mayor and I've already spoken to our group of people um, and uh, about creating a task force, including community members that are concerned, to help us look at, you know, what are the best metrics to put on there and also to give us input on what we're doing and give us support and uh, recommendations about where we're going. So HPD has also struggled with maintaining an animal control arm. It has two shelters, one of which in West Hawaii is already falling apart. And in July, the department reported that it took in more than 200 animals. And the short staffing and facility issues is why creating a new independent agency is so important. And Bill 22 was introduced in part by council member Cindy Evans. She said she's heard a lot of community concern. That I think the message is loud and clear from the testifiers today and some of the emails that I've gotten the last uh, week is, you know, we really want transparency, we want accountability, we want to make sure that we deal with proper shelter management, we want the ability to have a task force or ability for the public to feel that they can weigh in and oversee what's being done. So clearly one of the issues with housing and animal control or shelter operation within a police department is that they don't have the training to be animal caregivers. And a part of this bill will give the county the authority to hire a shelter administrator. But managing director Lee Lord says that's only part of what the new position will do. So what we need to do once this bill is passed, of course, we need to get the administrator on board, but we also need to come up with a plan. We need to sit down and say, you know, what are our priorities and where are we going to spend our effort and our money and go from there? What resources are we going to need? What assistance are we going to need? We need to have a plan, especially for that administrator to know what we're looking at them to do, where we want to go and how we're going to get there. And already residents have said this bill is too vague. They want to see the county have a fuller plan developed rather than relying on a to-be-named administrator who they're not sure what qualifications they'll have or anything of that sort. So the bill is up for a second and final reading in March. And already Councilmember Jen Kagiwara has said that she'd like to amend the bill to add more oversight and designated reports to the council. And, you know, I don't know if uh, one side of the island, the east side or the west side, has more of a problem with 
one animal or another, but it just sounds like it's just a problem. They just have too many pets at their shelters. Yeah, they have too many pets in their shelters, but I do know on uh, in West Hawaii, the facility is falling apart, so they have too many dogs in there, as well as just they're working with the um, public works department to build up the facility, make it better quality and condition, not only for the animals that are housed in there, but also for the employees. So be curious to see, yeah, I mean, how far they go with their reach. You know, I don't know how many... Uh, complaints they get let's say about feral chickens you know because here in mm-hmm. Honolulu certainly that's a, that's a real problem and and with the cats I know they say that the cats here could be in the hundreds of thousands of feral cats so part of the thing is is that the county doesn't have to pay for those spay and neuter operations and that was something that the Humane Society was doing out of its own pocket through its budget and that's kind of why they moved out of the county's operations and county space. So the county was saying that spay and neuter operations are going to really rely on the nonprofit community outside humane societies rather than taking that on in their new independent agency. Interesting. So they've got to focus on the facilities building new kennels, Mm -hmm. some of the basic infrastructure. Versus the spay and neuter operations, yes. All right. Interesting issue. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. Mm -hmm. We've been talking to HBR's Sabrina Bowden. You can check out the Animal Control Story on hawaiipublicradio.org. And now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. We asked you to dust off your memories of Aloha Stadium. The venue opened in 1975, was constructed of steel, which earned it the nickname Metal Mecca. Over the years, it was home to several sporting events. The late soccer legend Pele drew over 21,000 fans for a match in 1976. The 50th State Fair came to the parking lot the same year. The Hawaii Super Bowl, a truck and tractor pull event, was a hit in 1984. And daredevil Robbie Knievel crashed his motorcycle in 1989. In addition, several memorable concerts were held there. Stevie Wonder was one of the first rocking the house in November of 1982. In 1984, the police held their farewell concert with over 31,000 fans in attendance. And Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston both graced the stage there in 1997. And while the last concert at Aloha Stadium was in 2019, the very first was held in December 1976 and featured Kalapana and Cecilio and Capono. Congrats to our winner, Kathy from Kapolei. Got it right. If you have an idea for a backyard quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Outrigger Resorts and Hotels, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land. Outrigger.com. 
I'm Tom Ashbrook, host of NPR's On Point. Behind the headlines, there is so much more to know. How it all impacts the country, the world, your family. At On Point, we're working hard to shine a light on the way ahead. Listening, challenging, inviting all perspectives, you, into an important national conversation right here and online. Join us for the next On Point. Monday through Thursday at 2 p.m. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Beloved local stand-up comic Andy Bumatai is preparing to go on his first tour since before the pandemic. He started his career in the 1970s and got his first big break when he replaced Rap Reppinger in the comedy troupe Booga Booga. Here's a clip from his 1979 comedy album Live in Waikiki. My dad was such a fun guy. His favorite sport in the whole world was getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, going to the kitchen and chasing roaches. And if he found one, he had to run, get his favorite can of insecticide, sneak up on the roach, and hit him with the can. <laughs> kind of roaches we had, man. You can't just spray them. You spray them. Oh, thanks for the bath. <laughs> and since that time, Bumadai has starred in two classic television specials, High School Days and All in the Ohana. He also headlined at several clubs across the country. Today, the native Hawaiian Filipino entertainer is best known for his daily pigeon podcast on YouTube. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with Bumatai in our studios to talk about cracking jokes in modern times. How have you seen Hawaii's comedy scene evolve from when you got your start to what it is today? Well, the big change is social media. You know, you look at what Tumua Tuine has accomplished, right? And a large part of that is because he's got 300,000 Instagram followers. Mm -hmm. Back when I was doing it, you know, there were three television stations and you had to, you know, staple posters to a telephone pole to get people to come to your shows, Mm -hmm. you know? So social media is the one that I think was, is the big change. the second one was as comedy evolved, probably before Tumul was born, people started jumping on stand-up comedy like Deft Comedy Jam right, and all this type of thing. <clears throat> I'm going to go. I'm going to show my age here a little bit. Comedy clubs in their heyday were akin to folk music mm-hmm. clubs in their heyday. In fact, the Ice House in Pasadena used to be a folk music place. And when those started fading away, right, folk music, they went, what are we going to do? And then they started bringing comedy on. So comedy benefited stand-up comedy from all these little clubs that were already established that were looking for a new product, right? So that happened. Boom. You could go on, when I was a road monster, what you could go out if you wanted, you know, 
12 months out of the year. I knew comics who didn't have an apartment mm -hmm. because they just lived in the comedy condos. Now, all of that, of course, has since changed. And one of the big changes came when Deaf Comedy Jam came out and it, and they just said, okay, no rules on language, no rules on subject matter. And suddenly everybody went, that's stand-up comedy? Because it was wildly successful. Mm -hmm. In fact, when that show happened, it kind of hurt my career because someone said, hey, how about Andy? You know, he does stand-up comedy. And someone goes, oh, we can't have a stand-up comic. You know, my mom might show up for the show and you know what stand-up comics are like. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, we've never done that, right? Yeah. And the scene, particularly in Hawaii, right, has always been if you're not family friendly, you know, if kids and kupuna can't be in the audience, you can't make a living, you know? And that goes for Agitoba and Tumutuine and James Mani. They may, you know, use a, you know, a, a questionable, <laughs> questionable word once in a while, but by and large, especially if they're at some place like the Blue Note, you know, they keep it clean. You have to, to be able to work enough to make a living. Here. Yeah, that's what Tumu was telling me. I've talked to him a couple of times he made a conscious effort to be a clean comic and I think part of that decision he shared was that it kind of keeps him out of controversy as well and today there's there's this huge portion of our society that is moving towards this political correctness way of thinking there's mm -hmm. there's comics that have gotten backlash or gotten in trouble for their style of comedy do you find it harder to write jokes today because you know of what when I did the, my first Showtime special right which is you know I think I was the first Hawaiian comic to do a national show like that, they edited out a bunch of stuff because I was making reference to my Filipino dad and Filipinos, and, and they said, oh, that's, you know, politically incorrect, and it's a ethnic stereotype. And then years later, along comes Joe Coy, who does all that same stuff and fills stadiums now, right? So, you know, there has been an evolution as long as you are the ethnicity that you're teasing, right? But the whole, you can't tease certain people because it hurts their feelings things. You know, comics have always been the modern day court jesters, mm -hmm. right? The court jester could tease the king and get away with it because they said things that they didn't invent right they reflected what people are saying you know i do this joke in my act i say you know in hawaii we tease filipinos about eating dogs because they do you know i didn't start that <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah. and in fact uh, i i wrote this joke uh, well adapted a joke one time and i said uh, you know frank de lima was putting up with a lot of heat yeah. when, when he was uh, doing filipino jokes because he's not filipino right and I said, you know, I wrote this joke for Frank, and, and it goes like this, you know, three guys walk into a bar, right? None of any particular ethnicity. The first guy, he's wearing a lime green shirt and purple pants, and he's carrying a black dog named Lunch, right? And he sees a fly in his beer, he's disgusted and pushes the beverage on the side. The second gentleman of no particular ethnicity, is quietly enjoying a malasada, and he's a little nervous because he locked the keys in his car, the top is down and might rain. Now he sees the fly in his beer and 
removes it and enjoys his lovely beverage. Now, the third gentleman of no particular ethnicity. He lives in a house with a red door. has a big mole with a hair coming out of it. And he just happens to be the landlord. He sees the fly in his beer, pulls it out, and says, You no steal from me! Spit out! Spit out! <laughs> I, so... Proving you right. don't need ethnic, and and my the point of that is that you know who inserted the ethnic stereotypes, right? The people fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. So in other words, my my point was you can make all the jokes you want about black professional surfers, and if if no one goes. You know, I've never seen a black professional surfers. I'm sure there are some, but not enough to joke about in a, in a broad scale. It wouldn't be funny. But I'll tell you what, Russell, for me, the, the acid test, and I always tell this to people, if you can't tell, like, a Samoan joke in front of a room full of Samoans, yeah. you can't tell the joke. Yeah, that's a, that's a good rule to live by. Yeah. That's a good rule. All right, before we get to... Because uh, I'm interested in how you do write your jokes. Because I watched a couple of your really early stand-up. I watched your Showtime special. And it seems like you do a lot of what people would call observational comedy. Stuff that people yeah. usually associate with like Jerry Seinfeld and, and some of those other types of comedians. But before we get there, mm-hmm. I just wanted to tell you a joke <laughs> that I wrote that may be part of a five-minute set that I do somewhere down the road. Okay, The first time I changed my son's diaper, he peed on me. Yeah. 16 years later, he stepped on Havana. I got him back. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? As long as you tell that to people who, who understand the Havana thing. Right, right. <laughs> because, you know, that, that's the only part about yeah. it. If I was going to coach you on that joke, uh-huh. I would establish the Havana thing. A lot of tourists are amazed that if you step on Havana, the best cure is to urinate on it. And I didn't appreciate that until I had a son, and as a baby, I was changing his diaper, and he peed on me. Years later, we're at the beach, he steps on a vana. I had my chance for revenge. Yeah. <laughs> and see, what, what's so great about it, I think, is that it's 100% true, like 100% true. Well, you know, I tell comics as they're building a uh, you know, all the comics who might be listening to us going, oh, no, not that example again. <laughs> but I say, someone says, you know, like, take, for instance, uh, when your son was at the beach and he stepped on the vana, yeah. okay, what was he wearing? He was wearing just board shorts. Okay, yeah. what color were the board shorts? I think they were red with, or they were blue with, like, a red stripe. Okay. Yeah. See what I'm saying? You have the picture right. in your mind, so when you deliver it, it's it's authentic. There are people that go, you know, my dad was in the, in the living room, and he was eating a pizza, and I go, let me stop you. What's your dad wearing? No, I, well, I don't mention that in the act. I know, I understand that, but what is he wearing? I don't know. Yeah, you don't know, so when you deliver it, you'll deliver it like you don't know, and people will pick up on that. They won't go, oh, he doesn't know what he's wearing, but he'll, they'll, they'll sense that it isn't authentic. Yeah. And that's an acting thing, too. You know, actors go through that. So when you write your jokes, mm-hmm. do you take a lot of your personal experience or your personal observations? Is that where you find a lot of your humor? Well, in, in the beginning, you do that because it's basically all you have, right? But as you develop the comedic muscle memory, right, you can apply that comedic formula to pretty much anything after you get good at it. 
the key to comedy is to walk people down a road. They think they know where they're going, and at the very last second, boom, the thing U-turns. I know that you've got some shows coming up. I know you're touring with Frank and Augie. Well, you know, we have March 1st at the Blue Note. That's the first one. And I, and I don't remember the dates. If you go to andyboomatai.com, then you can find out where we're going to be in April at the Palace in Hilo. And then after that, we're at the Maui Arts and a Cultural Center. That's myself, Frank DeLima, and Augie Toba. And then after that, we're doing a pre-Mother's Day show. I think it's in May, the day before before Mother's Day at the Kauai Beach Resort. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you so much for coming into the station, no. Andy. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed talking to you. I've been a fan for years, and I'm glad I finally got the chance to meet and talk story with you. Disappointing, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me, Russell. That was local comedian Andy Bumatai giving tips to HBR's Russell Subiano. Bumatai's In Denial tour kicks off at the Blue Note Waikiki tomorrow night. He also has shows scheduled for Hilo and Maui in April and for Kauai in May. We'll have links to more information on hawaiipublicradio.org slash the conversation later today. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we look at the history of strongmen or authoritarians across the globe and throughout history. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation Podcast online or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. ¶¶